All right, Ephesians, excuse me, not Ephesians, that was a few weeks ago. Romans, that was four years ago. <laughs> Philippians, I just wanted you to know that I know all the books in the New Testament, so that was kind of a humble brag there. Okay, so Philippians, so here's what we have. Okay, so um, we are, my, my, my son, my youngest son plays soccer, and he, on, his, on his soccer team, we, he has this kid on his team named Novak, cute kid. And Novak's dad, whenever he talks to him, speaks to him in Serbian, right? And he speaks his language. And my youngest son always goes, I love when Novak dad talks to him. He speaks to him in his own English. And I'm like, no, it's not, it's not his own English, <laughs> right? So when I talk to his dad, I'm like, why do you, why do, you do that? He goes, for, for two reasons. One, like, I know that he's going to hear me because nobody else is speaking Serbian out here. So when I talk to him, he knows who's talking to him. I know the coach says don't coach from the sideline, but I do it anyway, right? And he goes, the other part is with my kids, I want them to know. We go every summer for a whole month back home, and I want them to know where they're from. And a lot of the language and food and so forth, it starts in the home. And so when I speak the language to him, it's something I never want him to forget or to lose. And many of you guys here who have native tongues and different languages, you know what I'm talking about to be able to make sure that your kids have that particular language. Um, but it all starts in the home. Like even if you don't have another language in which you speak, there's a certain way that many of us speak around family that's different than other people. Um, or different friends or, or, or people that we hang out with that's different. My wife likes to tell me, um, I can always tell on the phone when you're talking to someone who's black or someone who's not. And I said, uh, what you mean, girl? Right? And so, and, and, and the reason being, or, or she can even now say when it's my family. So I grew up in California, but my roots, my family roots are in the south. And if you ever want to hear southern me, get me around my family. It's a, we fix into, I mean, it's the whole like the way in which we talk to the point where my kids who were not raised like that, when they get around my mom's side of the family, I'm like, I ain't for to do this. And I'm like, oh, wow, how'd you get that, right? And it's these things that are, that are actually, they're fostered in the home. Okay, so here's what we have here in Philippians. Paul is writing this letter to this church, and particularly in this text, 12 through 18, he's trying to remind them of the things that ought to be learned at home as they live in the world. And what he's doing is he's talking to a group of people, men and women and children who love Jesus, and the home for them is not so much just a dialogue, it's that they are citizens in heaven. In the same way that some of us are dual citizens, he says, as our, as our spiritual, our spirituality in Christ, we are dual citizens, meaning we belong to heaven. And what Paul is saying is you need to act out your future reality in the present. And the way that that happens is it's nurtured at home. It's nurtured in the body of Christ. It's the things and the ways of Jesus in which we devote ourselves to him afresh. It is weekly gathering with each other. It is looking to God's word. It is confession. It is prayer. It is all of these things that remind us of who we are to bring glory to God and also to witness to him. And so if there was one word that would boil down this section, it would be obedience. And we're going to talk more about that. It would be obedience, um, obedience that begins to find our lives demitted, uh, devoted to Christ. And so Paul here is going, in this particular section, what does it look like for the people of God to be in community and relationship with one another in such a way that we become faithful witnesses to the people around us, all right? And so the, the way we said it a couple weeks ago, and I'll say it again, is this, that when it comes to the life of those of us who are in Christ, 
And what Paul is gearing at in the whole book of Philippians, and particularly in this section too, is that we, we are to, we, we're supposed to have a collective embodied paraphrase of the life of Jesus, right? So we are a collective embodied paraphrase of the life of Christ to the world around us. And here's what I mean by that. Collective meaning Paul's not talking to you as an individual. In the same way that he's not talking to just an individual at the church here at Philippi, he's talking to every single man, woman, and child who believes in Jesus that we are to have a collective paraphrase. I mean, we know Christ so much through the scriptures and the ways of walking with him that we live out his life in such a way that the world around us, they begin to know and seek and follow Jesus. But we cannot do that properly unless it first starts at home. Amen? All right, whatever. All right, Philippians. I don't need you guys. Philippians chapter 2. Read with me. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, and so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good Pleasure. Okay, so any good Bible teaching, and you've heard this before if you've ever heard me preach. Whenever you read, therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. Okay, so we got to do something here. Because that means the writer, particularly in this case, the Apostle Paul, is trying to connect something he's about to say with something that he already said. And so where we're at, just kind of a brief recap, is Paul started something in verse 27 of chapter 1 that he's going to conclude in chapter 2, verse 18. So if you step all the way back... What we said was this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church that's in Philippi. Now, when you think about church, don't think about Redemption Church, Grace Church, Missio Dei Church, separate churches. Think about Paul writing a letter to the church in Maricopa County, right? So that means every single man, woman, and child that lives in Maricopa County that trusts in Jesus, this letter is written to you. Now, the history was that the way the church was started was a group of women who would meet by the riverside and pray. God answered those prayers, sent Paul there, and the church was started. Paul was ran out of the city of Philippi, which, by the way, is in the Roman colony. He was ran out through persecution because of his belief in Jesus. What's happening now is that there's persecution that is happening for the men and women who believe in Jesus Christ now. Paul is writing this letter, as he often does, to address something. He's writing from prison, one of his many uh, trips in jail for believing in Jesus, and he writes this letter to encourage them to continue to have joy in Christ, to be faithful to Christ, to be witnesses to Christ, no matter what comes their way. And verse 27 of chapter 1, he starts off by saying, live your life in in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Not that there's a way that you live that then God loves you. It says because God loves you and you, you receive that through the good news of Jesus, live your life that way. And then he goes on to say in chapter 2, he starts off by saying, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, um, any participation in the spirit, any affection, in, in essence he's saying, if you're a Christian, here's what I want you to do. I want you not to consider your needs as the only needs, but consider the needs of others. So he gives this kind of imperative of how we ought to live. And then after that, he, he, he writes what we know as a hymn, as a poem about Christ. And that's what Josh talked about last week. And that is Jesus Christ himself, who existed before he took on flesh with the Father, who emptied himself, lowered himself to the point where he was even obedient to the point of death. And so he displays this gospel truth of how God in Christ is the Messiah that all we're longing for, and not just God's chosen one, the Messiah, but God himself, the second person of the Trinity. 
And even though he was God, he found himself serving others. Paul is saying, if you want to get Christian ethics, if you want to get Christian mission, if you want to get Christian evangelism, you have to look at Jesus who was high but took a position of being low. Paul is trying to get the body of Christ in Philippi, and I would say the body of Christ here in Tempe, to realize the way in which we live for Christ is being obedient to God with each other and loving one another and then lowering ourselves to be able to serve others. So Paul ends that beautiful picture there with saying, here is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and here's the example of how we ought to live. Thus, when he picks up in verse 12, he says, therefore... Meaning, in response to the gospel of Jesus, because what God has done for you in Christ, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed. I said before, like, this, this whole thing is really, really about obedience. Now, what happens from here is what many people get confused over because Paul says some things that seem to contradict a lot of other things that Paul teaches in his other letters. He says, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If you just pause there for a second, most of you who grew up in church would go, wait a minute, is Paul saying that we have to work for our salvation? And is Paul saying that we should work for it in fear and trembling because we may not get in? Okay, let me just, without having to spend a whole lot of time, no. Okay, so <laughs> continuing here. <laughs> it's like, that was lazy of him. Wait, wait. <laughs> For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. First, let's deal with the, the bigger picture here, and that is obedience. And the working definition of obedience that I tried to come up with is obedience in itself is devotion to Christ expressed through active worship. Okay? It's devotion to Jesus expressed through active worship. De devotion to Jesus expressed through active worship. What we have when we think about obedience is we think about following the rules. Right? And what usually it tends towards is morality. It's not to say that we should not be moral, but it's far bigger than that. And that is devotion is when you give yourself to someone or something. That we're not just following the rules of Jesus because he's done something for us, now let's follow all of his rules. That is somehow the gospel is that God somehow captured us and now we're on his team. We got to do whatever he says. We really, don't, we really don't want to, but we have to. That's not it. What we see here is that devotion is not just devoting ourselves to the laws and lines, but it's devotion our, devoting ourselves to the person of Christ, who, by the way, is Lord over all of creation. That obedience in itself is more, it's more about ethics, it's more about affection, it's more about love for what God has done for us in Jesus. And so we participate out of thanksgiving to who God is. Therefore, it's worshipful. And it becomes active worship because worship is not just raising our hands and singing, but it's also what we do Monday through Saturday before we gather again on Sunday. That worship is expressed by the way that we change diapers. Those of you guys who are still changing diapers, glad, glad I'm done with that. It, worship is the way in which we, we express our love for God with the people in whom we work with, the people in whom we live with, the people in the grocery store. Dare I say the people on the streets in which we drive. That's why we don't have church stickers, right? We don't want anybody knowing where you guys go to church by the way you drive. <laughs> it's not a good witness, right? 
So you, you have this picture of obedience. Hear me. Obedience is far more about devoting ourselves and participating with God. Okay. Now have that in mind. We're going to come back to it. Then Paul gets to this point. He says, work out your faith and fear and trembling. What he's talking about there about the fear and trembling is awe. And that there should be an awe of who God is and what he's like because of his justice. Because of who we are in our own frailty, um, in our own inabilities, and ultimately in our, in our weakness of not being God, and even in our sinfulness, that when we approach God, there is this sense of he is someone to revere, right? That's why when that whole movement of Jesus is my homeboy, too, I'm like, that, that's like the worst thing in the world. Because we, 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 in some ways, we don't see the transcendence or the holiness of God. And what Paul is saying is, no, that, that's, like, he is holy. Now, everything when Paul writes, he has in mind of the story of the whole Bible. And that is, you did not approach God. People did not approach God in this just, like, Jesus is my homeboy type of like, way. There was a sense of we are approaching the holy, that he is God. So he's saying, when it comes to your salvation, like, approach it with fear and trembling. Now, He's not saying you have to work to receive. First of all, that would go against every single thing else that he teaches and that the Bible teaches. In fact, I would argue with this. The reason why it's so difficult for us to be able to understand what Paul is saying is we are very, like, an individualistic culture. So we read everything as the individual. Paul's actually talking to the collective here. He's talking to the group. Um, and, and we are so, as Christian evangelicals, the language of, quote, unquote, getting saved gets thrown around so much that all we think about is, quote, unquote, getting saved. And so when we read this, we think Paul is talking about how a person gets saved. He's not. He's not talking about how a person gets saved, nor is he talking about how a person remains saved. He talks about those things in other places, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking how a saved or a person who's made right before God by the gospel of which he just talked about, how that person or how those people live in light of the gospel. What is the ethic code in which they live in? That means God has worked something in us through the grace in which we receive from Jesus, and there's a life in which we show thank you and gratitude to God. And so another way to say it is the way in which we show that we have faith in the gospel is through our obedience. It's not proving anything. We're not proving in our obedience to God how much we love him. We're not proving God, nor is not proving to us by checking our obedience to see if he's going to love us or not. It is what happens when you love somebody. Right? There's a difference, there's a difference when, you, when you have a crush on somebody and when you love somebody. Okay? A crush on somebody might be this. When me and Holly first started dating, she said, hey, do you like to hike? I said, yeah. Okay? It's a lie. Um, <laughs> I don't like hiking, and that's not some stereotype thing, you know. I do like to swim. And so you have. <laughs> she said, do you hike? And I said, sure. So we went up Camelback Mountain. And, I mean, that's not like a regular hike either. I thought she was like, let's go, on, you know, not the Camelback Mountain. And so we're, 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 we're walk up there, and uh, first of all, I show up with shoes that don't look like hiking shoes, because why would somebody who never hikes have hiking shoes, right? Jordan doesn't make hiking shoes. And so... <laughs> I do that because I'm doing whatever I can to convince her that I like her. It's way different once there's a covenant there. I don't need to do anything to convince Holly that I love her. I might need to do some things to remind her. I might need to do some things to, like, just let her know that I still love her as much as I did almost 12 years ago. But the things in which we do is because of the relationship. The things in which I do or she does is because of the covenant. And it's because that we have a relationship together. 
In the same way that when it comes to our obedience or even working out our salvation, it is not to get God to go, man, I think he likes me or I think she likes me. It is actually to say because we know that God loves us, that this is the way in which we ought to live our life. And what Paul is saying is this is work. But the work in itself, as you get the latter part of this text, is that it's not just us like striving on our own. But what Paul says here is, it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What he's saying is this, is that God provides everything we need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. The, the, the way that we are supposed to live, the way that we're supposed to live in community, the things that are supposed to be worked out in, in the home, that God is the one who provides everything that we need. That every good gift and every perfect gift that James talks about comes from the Father, that we know that God has given us everything that pertains to godliness is what Peter talks about in his letter. What Paul is ultimately saying is whatever it is that God has called us to do as a church, he's already provided for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So this is not a fear text of like, I wonder if I'm going to get, it's more of an encouragement. And it is, it is rich with so much theology that basically says this, guys, is that when it comes to Christian ethics, when it comes to our obedience, it is not an obedience purely out of duty, but out of delight. You, do you hear me? It's not, it's not an obedience that comes from I want to be affirmed by God. It's an obedience that flows from my affections that God has for me and there are my affections for him. That, that what happens is when a man or a woman comes to grips to knowing God. I mean, Paul talks about this in the, in the letter of the Romans, that, that we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, which is natural. But what is supernatural is to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we are converted, we are changed, that our affections, our delights, they now see things that we've never, ever seen before. We delight in things that we've never delighted in before. So, so the best way to describe this, when I became a Christian, grew up going to church um, a lot, actually, never really got the gospel, never really understood the word of God. Um, every time the pastor would preach, it would just go over my head, um, and I just never really got it. When God opened my eyes to see Jesus, one of the things that was unique to me was opening the Bible and being able to somewhat understand what God was saying. Like, I would read it, and then, and then the next day, want to read it again. The other thing was my desires. Like, there were things that I desired to do that I never desired to do. Like, not hiking, like things for God, right? Like obedience in ways where I desire to do it. So oftentimes when we become a Christian, some people think, okay, here's a list. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I desired to go to church. I never wanted to go to church as a kid. Like I grew up in a family. My dad didn't go to church. My mom went to church all the time. Um, I never agreed with my dad on anything other than Sunday morning. And I was like, you know what, I think I need to be with dad today. I don't think we should go to church ever, right? I hated it. When I became a Christian, I couldn't wait to sit down in a service, sing songs that I didn't even really like, listen to somebody teach the Bible, and look forward to it every week. I begin to read the Bible, and for the first time, looking at the things in which God wanted us to do and the things God didn't want us to do, I wanted to do the things that God wanted us to do, and I didn't want to do the things that God didn't want me to do. It was a new desire in which I have. That's part of what Paul is saying, that when it comes to obedience, God now says, work it out, meaning it's really hard to work out this salvation, to live in light of the gospel. However, God gives you everything you need. So if you're not working it out, it's not God's fault, right? If we are not working out, it's not God's fault. Now, I, I do got to say something. Just because you become a Christian and you have these new affections and new desires, that doesn't mean the old desires just go away. 
right? Because you read passages like the old is gone, the new is here. He's talking about your reality and your identity, meaning you are now in Christ. You are no longer belonging to the world. However, you got all sorts of temptations and all sorts of issues. One of the first guys to disciple me, he told me, now that you're a Christian, you won't want to do any of the things you used to want to do. Okay, that's a lie. So I don't even talk to him anymore, right? <laughs> you are still going to want to do those things, okay? So just so you know. But you also want to do the things that God calls you to do. And there's that tension that Paul talks about in Romans. You know, the things that I want to do, sometimes I don't do. And the things that I, God says don't do, somehow I keep doing those things. Like, who's going to save me? And it's not me. It's actually Jesus. Amen? So the, the, this first part of this particular section, which is the, the meat of this, is that as the Christian community, we ought to be working very hard at what God has worked in us. That means the salvation in which we have in Christ, the life in which we have, is not a vertical relationship only. Meaning God saw me as a sinner needing help, needing to be saved, needing to be redeemed, redeems me in Christ, and now all I have is this vertical relationship, and the rest of my life doesn't matter until Jesus comes. Like, that's not the gospel. It's actually God did do that in me, and now this is horizontal understanding of now I live in community with other men and women who love Jesus in such a way that other men and women may love Jesus because of the way in which we live. Like, like here, here, here's what I mean. When Paul says this, that he works it to the will, um, the latter part of verse 13, and for good work for his good pleasure, he's talking about God's desire and God's pleasure, like what God desires in us when it comes to our obedience, when it comes to us devoting our lives collectively to Christ and it, it expressing itself in active worship. That active worship is not only giving glory to God, but living in such a way that the non-Christian world around us has an opportunity to know what God is like through the way that you and I love each other. Like, think about this, that we are now part of this grand narrative of which God has been writing throughout Scripture that we now participate in by invitation and command in Christ Jesus, and we're given a script. And the script that we're giving is something that we want to do. Like, I don't know if you guys grew up where you had to do plays and stuff like that. Nah, some of you want to do plays, and that's awesome if that's the calling on God, uh, for God on your life. I don't like acting. Like, uh, see, I don't even like acting, right? But I grew up in a small black church, and we did plays all the time. And my mom was like, there was no, I, I've never said no to my mom ever, okay? And so we had these lame plays, and then they would give us the script. And you'd have to, you know, I was always a wise man. I think I was a wise man every year, right? Um, and I hated it. So that's not the script that God gives us. It's not like now that you're a Christian, you kind of have to do these things. Here's the script. I don't know. Fake it till you make it, right? It's more like if you were given the script of Hamilton, Right? And now you're like, oh, yeah, I want to live this one out. I don't want to throw away my shot, right? And so there's, there, there, some of you guys got it. Some of you are like, no, you shouldn't. So there, there is this sense of going, now we have this script. God has worked out. Um, he's worked in. Now we work out what God has already worked in. But what does that begin to look like? Like, what does it look like? And then Paul concludes this first part, which is giving us very, very simple things. Look at verse 14. I'm going to read verse 14 all the way to 18. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Okay, we could stop right now. We could literally, we could stop right now and go, okay, if anybody in here has grumbled or been in dis dispute or something has complained this whole week, let's get on our knees and let's confess. Church over, right? 
Like Paul says, he doesn't go, okay, now here's what we do. You got to think about all your friends you know. Text them. Let them know that Jesus loves them. And then you got, no, no. Hey, how about this? Stop complaining. Right? Like all the theology in the world boils down to this. Quit complaining. Like that was an issue, I guess, in the church in the first century. Thank goodness. Things have changed. And so there's, <laughs> he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So here is what Paul is talking about here. Um, one, there's a lot of Old Testament references here. That Paul is just not writing words. So when it comes to, like, our obedience and, like, our mission, it, it basically boils down to loving God and loving others. I mean, like, when you're like, okay, work out the salvation, fear, and trim, like, what does it look like? Paul's just like, quit complaining. Amen. Right? I mean, like, it really is how you love God is expressed in the way that you love others. I mean, it just boils down to that. Paul, Paul says here, if you look at this again, like, he says, do not grumble and dispute. Now, he's not just making these things up. Everything he's referencing to is to the people of God. And he's talking to people of God in the Old Testament. And that is God's people in whom he redeemed out of Egypt to be a witness, to, be, to bear witness to who he was to the rest of the world. And how they failed in that mission. And when you go back and you read, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 32, what it, part of it was is because they grumbled. And that's all they did was grumble. And then there was, there was consequences for that. And then so when Paul says that, he's saying, you are not like the old covenant people. You are the new covenant people. That don't be people who grumble and complain, even in the midst of your suffering. And now Paul is talking about a suffering that is coming from those who are being obedient and following and devoting their lives to Jesus. He says, do not grumble, because there's been grumbling that's happening. He's going to mention it later, too. There's some people who are going at it. He says this, with grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children. The reason why he says that you may be blameless and innocent is as a re response to God's people in the wilderness complaining and grumbling. He says to them, you are not like my children, and you are not innocent, and you are not blameless. What Paul is saying is there's a compare and contrast. This is what the people of God did that did not go well. Now in Christ Jesus in response to the gospel, you ought not to complain. You ought not to grumble. You are God's children. You will be blameless and innocent as you live in response to Jesus, not to the culture that's around us. And so Paul continues here with pulling from the Old Testament. He says this, that you're a crooked, it's in the midst of a crooked um, and twisted generation. God had already called his people the crooked and twisted generation. He's saying you are no longer that. Not because what the Philippians had done, but because what God in Christ had done on their behalf. That there's something about the gospel that, that where Israel, Israel failed in their mission for God, that the people of God and the church will not. Not because there's anything different between the people of God and the people of Israel here, is that ultimately what has happened that they look forward to is that we now have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us because what God in Christ has done on our behalf. Amen? He's saying you don't have to worry about not having the resources or the motivation to do what God's called you to do because he's already worked it in you. So therefore, be children. Children, whether we like it or not, will mimic their parents. Those of you who have young kids, 
all of us who in here, we have young kids. Your kids will mimic you. And oftentimes, sadly, they mimic the things you don't want them to mimic. They always say the words that your wife is saying that you're like, you should be saying those words around these, <laughs> around these kids, right? And oftentimes as they grow up, they mimic the things that are true, right, and beautiful. That's why it's important that it starts at the home. That's the reason why the church talks so much about language of family. There's something about us being family that we begin to mimic the life of our father who loves us and our older brother who gave his life for us and the spirit of God who gives us the life of the love of the father and the son as we begin to follow him. Paul begins to conclude this, and he says this, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That is a reference, a direct reference from Daniel chapter 2, and it's a prophecy of he says, in that day the wise will actually be light of the world. And Paul right here is mixing metaphors here to show us the tension in which we live in and the world in which we live. And that is, it's crooked and it's twisted generation, almost like stay away from it. And so many Christians have went that route. I gotta remove myself from the world. That's impossible without dying, okay? There's no such thing as removing yourself from the culture. You just created another culture. But, but he's also saying, like, but it's twisted and it's, it's, it's crooked. But he says, but be lights in it. And so this picture of going, the very presence of God is most present in the world when the people who've experienced the presence of God, those of us who are Christians, those who God is telling us now, responding to Jesus to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who's working in this, that we are to not grumble, not complain, be children, innocent and blameless as we devote ourselves to God, that we would be light to the people around us. Not that we're best. Not that we're, we're not it. We're the ones who are reflecting but the light in which we see in Christ. Amen? Hear me. There's no such thing as a Christian who says we're best. That is the antithesis of what it means to be a Christian. We were not, but God was. And the one who was now made us a part of him that we can participate in what he's doing. That all that Israel failed in now because of Christ, now we are God's representation that we are God's people, that we reflect the light of Christ that is in us and to the world around us in the various vocations and neighborhoods and cities in which God has us in a way that shows the world around us what God is like. And it starts off with first, just stop complaining. And I'm guilty too. It is so easy to complain. And what Paul is talking about is the complaints that happen in the church. And not just redemption 10B, but he's talking about the unity that ought to happen in churches in general. And we've said this before, there's no need and we have no time for a church to be compared to another church. Well, that church down the street, you know, they're not, or that church over there, they're not, or they do this better. It's pointless. There's like very few people that are actually believing in Jesus that the very few that do can't be talking about the things that they, they disagree on, right? Not just that they shouldn't disagree, that's going to happen. That's family. You've never met a family member that you didn't disagree with. And if you have not met that family member, you're the person causing all the stuff in your family. So there's this, there, there's this unity that Paul is talking about and encouraging towards in Jesus. And then he concludes it with this. He says, holding fast to the word of life. That word of life that he's talking about is the word of God. Is a thing that sustains us working out our salvation with fear and trembling. To working out what God has already worked in. The thing that helps us, that motivates us, that shapes us. The things that we learn at home that we take out into the world is how we hold fast. That literally means cling to. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is remember what God has done in us in Christ, to cling into that and allowing that in home to shape us. Letting that be the language in which we hear from God, the language in which we speak to each other that we know that we're talking to brothers and sisters in Christ and we'll be obedient and devoting ourselves to the things of God. 
And Paul wraps it up with saying, like, now he goes from God and them to, like, hey, I had something to do with this. And he's not saying, like, pat on the back. It's just discipleship. And he says this, holding fast uh, to the word of life so that the day of Christ I may not be poured. uh, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or in labor or labor in vain. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also can be glad and rejoice with me. Here's what he's saying. Hey, I worked hard <laughs> to love you, and I know it wasn't for nothing. I don't think he's saying do this or when I get to heaven, I'll be like, man, that was wasted. He goes, no, I know it's not going to be wasted. And not because of our hard part Paul worked. In the same way when it comes to our discipleship, it's not going to be wasted. Not because of how hard we work at loving each other. It's because of how hard God has already worked in loving us in Christ Jesus. That everything we do, we flows from that. And yet, there's a way in which we're supposed to love each other. And the picture that Paul gives is not giving dabs and drinking beers. The picture that he gives is that even if I am being poured out like a sacrificial offering, and the picture there is a glass of wine that's being poured out, and not, <laughs> not for like the homies, right? <laughs> it's a glass of wine that's been poured out saying, I'm giving myself to you, knowing that God has given himself to me. So, so as we conclude here, in fact, go ahead and close your Bibles. We're going to go to the response, and I'm going to invite the band to come up. You know that. And when it comes to what is Paul saying, it really boils down to this. Like we, our obedience is a devotion. And the way that it's best expressed is loving God and loving others. This is something that you, you've heard this before. But the way Paul brings it to the community, it's very, it seems very trivial, and yet it's so big. And that is, don't complain and bicker amongst one another. But instead, try to be lights that reflect the light of Christ. Instead, try to be innocent and blameless. That picture there is being set apart for the purposes of Christ. Try to be like people who would be pouring themselves out for their brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that it's ultimately God who would pour into them and give them the strength. I'm not saying exhaust yourself. That's not wise. But it's realizing that the way that the world will begin to know God is by us being the light that he's called us to be. The way that evangelism is truly expressed best is by the people of God loving God and, being, and loving each other and working wildly and extremely hard at that love in community that the world may know Jesus. That collectively, we would be a church that pours ourselves out for the sake of the city in which we live in, not ultimately to earn its approval, but because we have already had the stamp of approval from Jesus Christ, who's our Lord and Savior. Amen? So we're going to respond to that, that truth, and that reality in the ways that we normally do here with redemption, and that is uh, we respond in at least four ways every Sunday. The first way is singing, and so Aaron will continue to lead us with the band and, and worshiping through song. Um, the other way is we, we pray. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you how much more we need prayer. Um, and so you come forth to receive prayer for yourself or even to intercede for people in your life, um, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, and so forth. And so there'll be people up here to my right and my left who would love to pray for you and also pray with you. Um, take this moment to take up our offering. And so the boxes are in the back by the door. Uh, we give in response to Jesus, and we give monetarily to see the gospel advance in our city, in our state, and throughout the world. Uh, if you are not a Christian, by your own words, you would say, I don't, I don't follow Jesus. We're glad that you're here. We really do believe that. Um, and we would ask that you wouldn't feel obligated to give any money. Just don't give any money. What we would love to receive from you is any questions, 
thoughts, concerns that you have with Jesus or anything you heard or didn't hear today, if you would take the connect card that's in the seat in front of you, take time to write down your question, um, put your email address and your name. If you drop those off in the offering boxes, again, which are located in the back by the doors, we'd love to get back to you and address those things. Um, lastly, we take communion. So a part of redemption, we take communion every week because we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is central. It's not even a part. It's not even on the list. It's not on the list. It's central to everything that we do, that we gain our life from it, that we confess through it, that we're encouraged through it, that we share it, that the gospel is, is, is the, motivating, the motivating force in our lives. And so we do this by remembering Jesus and his presence with us, by eating the bread and dipping it to the wine or the grape juice, um, that in itself is an opportunity for us to, to confess our love for God and to remember his love for us. So at this moment, I invite the communion team to come, over, come forward as well as a prayer team. And when the time is right and appropriate for you to respond, you can take your time. Uh, we're going we're gonna to respond in giving and singing and prayer and then also in worship.